0: Good morning We are on lesson fourteen, if you can believe it, in our study of the Thessalonian epistles, and this is the second part of our lesson on scripture twisters and the second coming. Years ago, when I was in seminary, we were assigned uh, a uh, the task of reading this text and doing a paper in which we would conclude uh, who, and and convince others, who the restrainer was. I wish I had read Augustine at that point in time. I should have turned it in on the top of my paper because he said, I don't know what it means. (laughs) I thought to myself, he's a pretty smart guy. And uh, if a guy as bright as uh, Augustine comes to that conclusion, there were probably times when the rest of us less bright folks Need to admit that as well. But what it says to us is that these are very difficult words. This is a difficult text we are dealing with. And scholars would probably agree. This is perhaps one of the most difficult texts that Paul has, we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And that leads me to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. And we would probably do well to take heed to his advice. Remember, Peter is talking about the return of our Lord Jesus and 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 uh, when it is going to come and that there is a delay, but it is a delay that is prompted by his desire to uh, to see many come to faith. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, And at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, which I would take it to be uh, the second coming and and, uh, sanctified living there are some things in them that are hard to understand. This is the guy who wrote about being Jesus descending into, into hell and coming up and, and whatever and thinking, boy, you ought to talk. But there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Isn't that interesting? When we're going to talk about lawlessness in our text. And lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So those are good words coming from Peter that we ought to be cautious not to be twisting scriptures, especially those which are the most difficult to understand. We ought to be careful not to be building too many uh, cases on those kinds of texts, although we certainly ought to seek to understand them. So the two problems in our text that it puts before us are a matter of identification. The man of lawlessness... And the identification of the restrainer who is described for us as well, so we need both uh, caution and restraint and part of the reason we can see that is that when we look in the uh, in throughout the history of the church, people have been pretty fast and footloose in terms of using the uh, label the man of sin or the man of lawlessness and and uh, and branding people. For example, early in the history of the church, it was used by, uh, for describing those vandal uh, uh, rebels who would come down and raid and eventually sack Rome. During the time of the Crusades, uh, it was used uh, of Mohammed because he stole the holy places and forced people to commit apostasy. In the 13th century, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX called each other the Antichrist, because they obviously didn't care for each other. And the Reformers called the uh, Pope the Antichrist or the lawless one and even the papacy itself. And then during the Counter-Reformation, uh, those Roman Catholics who were trying to, to rebound from the Reformation, they called Luther the Antichrist. Um, then in the Westminster Confession, in 1646, they called the Pope the man of sin and the son of perdition. In the last couple of centuries, Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin have all been called the Antichrist. And if I were to ask you, I suspect you would nominate a few more contemporary names who might also fit the category of the uh, the Antichrist. All of that is to say, hey, folks. So far, nobody's been right. So we need to be careful that we don't hang that label on people too quickly, in a too cavalier uh, of a fashion. There are, I think, when you come to this whole matter of the abomination of desolation, which is referred to in our text. There are earlier prototypes and and later prototypes that we probably ought to take a look at uh, as well. Uh, You see in Daniel's uh, writings, uh, discussion about the uh, abomination of desolation. And I was thinking just to mention a couple of those because we really don't have time to cover all of them. But look at verse uh, 31 and verse 36 in Daniel chapter 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Then if you look down at verse 36, And the king will do as he wills. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Now, when you read Paul's words, those words resonate in our minds. So Paul surely had uh, Daniel's prophecy in his mind as he spoke. But you remember that Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus the Fourth, in 169 BC, entered into the Holy of Holies, erected an altar to Zeus, and then sacrificed a pig on it. And many would see that as a fulfillment, at least a partial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies about the little horn. Then there was Gaius or Caligula in A.D. 40 that had declared that men were to set up a a, a statue or an image of himself in the temple area and to worship him. That never got carried out, but that was his intent. Then during the Jewish wars from 66 to 70, actually Jewish zealots entered into the sanctuary and profaned it. And after that, the Roman soldiers came in with the, with the ensign of, of the emperor and brought it into the temple area and offered sacrifices to it. And so you see that as another, if you would, another instance of abomination of desolation. Paul, of course, is talking about it here in our text. And after him, you have the emperor cult where you have men like Augustus and Nero, but primarily Domitian, who decrees that men were to worship him, the emperor, as God. So surely you're looking at something that is close to what we're reading about in Daniel. John has some interesting words about the Antichrist, and he speaks more uh, in terms of a sort of a type of person. He says, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, many Antichrists have come. And in verse 22, he says, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is uh, an Antichrist, And in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist. So you see that Antichrist becomes a sort of type uh, and not necessarily just an individual, although he is that. Now, the way I understand this is that there is multiple fulfillment of prophecy. And so you see, in effect, rehearsals. I guess that's the way I would look at history. I would see that these incidents that we've seen in history are rehearsals for the big one, if you want to call it that, when the final man of lawlessness will be revealed. But these early prototypes give us a sense of what he will be like and how that may work itself out. Okay, let's talk about the, uh, oops, I had a couple more things here that I've hastened right past in my multi-page notes. No wonder I lost it. Uh, Let me um, just talk for a minute about an observation. Paul's purpose was not to identify the main players. And and therefore, if we set ourselves to saying, who is the, the man of lawlessness or who is the restrainer, it seems to me we've missed the point. The issue is the false teaching that the day of the Lord has come. And Paul is setting out a sequence that Scripture has set down. And so before the day of the Lord comes, there must first of all be this apostasy or rebellion. Then there is the revelation of the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And then the Lord returns and the day of the Lord uh, is carried out. So he is making, in a sense, a chronological argument and saying, no, it cannot have happened because these things that precede it, have yet to take place. Uh, let's see. And a recommended uh, approach, as suggested by First Thessalonians 5, 27. Remember, that was where Paul, in very strong words, urged that this uh, epistle that he wrote, the first epistle, be read out loud to the people in the assembly. I was reading through Revelation again, and in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, depending on your translation, again it says that this, uh, blessed is the one who reads this out loud to the church. And I'm taking that as a bit of a a clue to how we ought to go about the interpretation of this text. You and I, uh, we have all kinds of copies and translations. Uh, And in fact, it's one of the problems. Somebody reads a translation, everybody's saying, that is what mine reads. But you've got all these different translations. Some of you have it on your handheld devices. Either that or you're watching the Cowboys and you're not confessing to it. But you've got it on various devices and we can do a concordance search and we can look up words and we can do all these things. Folks, they didn't have the copy in their hands. All they had was a reader that read it to them and read the whole epistle. And so they didn't just get one verse and they were going to deeply analyze that. And they had to come away from that saying, what is he trying to say overall? What is the message of this epistle? How do these chapters fit together? And so it seems to me that what we're saying is they had to understand the text in terms of the camels, not the gnats. They didn't have the opportunity to go into the nat straining mode, and so they had to listen for the main points. And it seems to me that's what we need to do as well, is that we need to be looking for those things which are the major points that he makes very clear, and on those things that are less clear, we don't put the priority on those that we might put on something else. Okay, the mystery of lawlessness And the man of lawlessness. And I put in parentheses the man of sin. There are, there is a textual difference in, in some manuscripts. And so in the, in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, you will see it's called the man of sin as opposed to the man of lawlessness. It's really a kind of academic difference because in 1st John chapter 3 and verse 4, he says sin is lawlessness. And so I don't think it's worth getting into some great tizzy about which of those two readings it is. We know basically the person to whom he is referring. So the mystery of lawlessness. Paul is talking about a man who is going to be revealed after the restrainer is taken out of the way, a man will be revealed who will be known as the man of lawlessness He will have satanic qualities. That's not really the word I wanted. He will have satanic attributes, and he will exalt himself to be worshipped like God, but he is not Satan. He is Satan-powered. He will have great uh, uh, abilities in terms of miracles and, and wonders that he performs uh, but before that, there is this ongoing working of lawlessness that takes place that is culminated by the revelation of the lawless one. The interesting thing I see is that there's a parallel. There is this ongoing working of restraint that parallels that lawlessness and it consummates with the removal of the restrainer, which opens the door, so to speak, for the man of lawlessness or the man of sin to be revealed. So the mystery of lawlessness is ongoing throughout history up until this moment and up until the time that the man of lawlessness is revealed when it really goes big time. But uh, this is something that's not really understood. It's the mystery of lawlessness that he's talking about. So how do we understand the mystery of lawlessness? Well, I I look at it in terms of Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is saying that the mystery that has not been understood, its I'm not saying the prophets have not foretold it, but it has not been clear that God was going to bring together Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church, and make of them one new man, So that there is this new unity and that that, that work that is done in Christ now creates a relationship between he and the church. So in Ephesians 5, the relationship between Christ and his church is the model, the pattern for Christian marriage. So I see lawlessness as something which is at work But its end game, its goal, is not really fully grasped. And and I would say, in particular, it's not fully grasped by unbelievers. For Christians, we ought to see where it's leading. It's leading to the consummation of the revelation of the the man of lawlessness. But I don't think that people see it uh, for what it is. It's something not grasped. So how is this mystery working itself out today, somehow lawlessness is is ongoing but kept under containment to some degree, but that it's going to go full bloom. And I, I'm just making a suggestion to you, I'm not saying this is inspired, but I'm making a suggestion to you how Satan may be working behind the scenes to prepare our age for a lawlessness that is such that the man of lawlessness could be revealed uh, even in our time, think about the proliferation of laws and lawyers and by the way, those go hand in hand, do they not? Laws and lawyers when you think about for instance the the healthcare law, and I, I downloaded a copy of it, and I suppose it depends on whether you do single space and double space or whatever but Bottom line is, mine had 1,990-some pages to it of, of the healthcare care law. Already, I am told, 4,000 pages of rules and regulations have been written to implement that. Now, folks, this is the beginning of woes. Sorry for that term. But it really is the beginning. And all I'm saying is, think about this, where you've got this stack of laws I think what's going to happen is we're going to be so frustrated and so fed up with laws that, frankly, we will, we'll disregard it because it's just so complicated. Who could know what in the world it says? We're still reading it to figure out what it says. And, and you've already got disregard in the sense that the majority of the country says, we don't want it. And so I think that that could, that could get carried out in a way that's, that leads to an age of lawlessness. Another thing, the way in which our country has come to pass laws. We saw this last week. Here's a a, an, a military appropriation bill. What you're saying is we need to pass a law that approves funds for soldiers in Afghanistan to be paid their salaries and for fuel to be purchased and weapons and all that stuff. So what happens? They tack on all kinds of extraneous legislation which has nothing to do with, with the carrying on of the war. And again, what, what happens to people is they begin to disregard the process by which our laws are made. Is that not true? There's a disregard and a disrespect for how laws are made and therefore there is a subtle disrespect for the law itself. And so I'm saying this mystery of lawlessness is working out in our midst, and I'm not sure that we even see it. But the end game is that people may just throw their hands up and say, phooey with the law. There are so many of them. They make so little sense. Uh, people just want to get rid of it. Then you toss onto that the fact that the laws are being passed without a sense of the absolute. Now, now try this on The biblical ideal is the Old Testament. I mean, sometimes we talk about the law in negative terms, and it is, if you look at it, as a way in which you're trying to earn God's favor. But the reality is the law was ten simple commandments. Ten simple commandments that people could read. They didn't have to read 50,000 pages to get it all. And those commandments could be reduced to two commandments. And when you look at the rest of of the Old Testament books of the law, what you see is that all of the the, the follow-up laws were simply implementation laws of those simple principles. I think you can see the analogy. We have a constitution that has some simple statements and the laws to follow that up. When our laws cease to honor the, the governing principles that are over them then there's disrespect for the law itself. Add to that the postmodern mindset, which says whatever I think is true is true for me, and whatever you think is true is true for you. You add postmodernism to the mix, and my friend, the law gets mighty low on the totem pole of what we respect. And I think there will reach a point where there is such disregard for the law that the Lord is now going to open the gate, so to speak. Restraint is going to be removed. And you're going to see this deluge of people who are going after this man of of lawlessness. The principle of restraint and the restrainer. Again, what you see is an ongoing influence. Now think about sin and its ability, as it were, to multiply in just quantum uh, terms. When you look at the fall described in Genesis chapter 3 and you move just that distance from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, the hearts of men have become so corrupt, the practices of men have become so corrupt that God indeed needed to wipe all mankind off the face of the earth. Man is really good at, at developing sin. So what did God do? Shorten man's lifespan. That'll, that'll help. Less time. Less time to, to implement and carry out your stuff. And and he added uh, law and government, capital punishment, Genesis chapter 9, so that there is a restraining effect that the law has to greater or lesser degrees, even in dictatorships. There is a sense in which there is a lid placed upon the sinfulness of man. And then you have the confusion of, of languages at Babel so that now men don't have the same collaborative freedom. And God, in a sense, was putting restraint. I believe that God has exercised and carried out restraint throughout the centuries. And I'm not even sure in my own mind that, that this effort to identify the restrainer uh, does justice in the sense that, let's face it, Ultimately, the restrainer is God. Is that not true? The restrainer is God. He's the one who keeps the lid on things. And what you have to restrain is not only men, but there's a whole angelic element that you see in the book of Daniel. So there's something going on up here. And what's going on up here and what's going on down here are somehow related. So restraint is a huge a thing that I'm not sure unless you unless you make the restrainer God himself, I'm not sure how that gets carried out. So I think there are various components to God's restraint, but we're not told who it is. I, I think you probably realize the problem. In this text, the restrainer is recognized by a neuter word and once by a masculine word. So it's like you're referring to the restrainer as it on the one hand and he on the other. The way I see it is that the restraining influence that's being carried on is the it. And the restrainer that's removed is the he uh, at some point in history. And then, of course, the man of sin will be revealed. And so to speak, all hell breaks loose. Somehow this, man is, will, this will be personified in a man, but God is the ultimate restrainer. Now, look at this. I think the text is really making a point of the appearance and sudden destruction of the man of lawlessness. He has said that lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is at work, and then there will be this time when the man of lawlessness will be set free, so to speak, because the restraint has been removed, and then the day of the Lord will come after that. So uh, let's look at that man of lawlessness for a second. It seems to me that one, the man of lawlessness is in a way a counterpart of Christ. That is, he exalts himself, he sets himself up to be worshiped, and he has his, the, the technical word parousia, he has his appearance. It is the same word used for him, his coming, so to speak. So he is a kind of counter Christ, antichrist, if you would. Uh, by the way, if I didn't say it, John speaks of the term antichrist. The rest of scripture talks about the man of lawlessness. I suspect those are one and the same persons from what I understand. So here is this uh, person, this man of lawlessness, who is the counterpart to our Lord Jesus. And his destruction is described not as the result of a long 15-round boxing match where finally... He, Jesus gets a TKO and 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 Satan takes a fall. The way this is described, you see that the, the Lord comes and, and, and that literally with His coming, He, with the breath of His mouth, blows this guy away. Now, that does not look like a wrestling match to me. Now, I would also say that when you look at Scripture, in particular when you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 21 and following, and others. It's obvious that certain events have not been included in the description that Paul gives in our text. That is, we know that the man of lawlessness is going to have a time when he reigns and even prevails over the saints. But Paul's purpose is to say, here's the sequence of events And lest people think this is some sort of life and death struggle, it's really not that uh, in the sense that there is any real great balance of power. This is a matter where God has allowed the man of sin a time of freedom and lawlessness a time of, of, of being exercised to carry out his purposes. When he is done with the man of lawlessness the man of lawlessness is done. And so you see it described in sudden, powerful ways that makes it clear God's running this thing, not Satan. God is not doing the boxing match routine uh, with Satan over that. Okay, and that, of course, is the sovereignty of God that we're talking about. So let's talk about the relationship between the man of lawlessness and a lawless society. When I look at our text, it's verses 9 through 12 that underscore that relationship between the man of lawlessness and the people who are being led astray, quote unquote, by him. Look at verses 9 through 12 with me. The coming, parousia, of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception... For those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, there are some who would seemingly say, that the man of lawlessness is turned loose and that in a sense you have this sort of neutral group of people who he cruelly deceives and leads down this path. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the people who will be led down his path are the people who have no love for the truth. They have rejected the gospel and because they have rejected the gospel, God sends them this man who will further lead them down the, the, the whole line of delusion and falsehood because they have rejected the truth. So God gives them a man of falsehood who takes them further down that path. Now, I think I mentioned this before, but I, I go back to a couple of texts. One would be Romans chapter 1 in my mind. Romans chapter 1 is talking about men who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They heard the truth. They saw the revelation of God. They saw the demonstration of his invisible attributes. And they said, no, I'm going to worship the creature rather than the creator. It's a deliberate choice not to believe in God and to disobey his word. That's what these people have done as well. But the consequence in Romans 1 is God gives them over to a depraved mind and he gives them over to a depraved life as the consequence of their choice. Now, that I see in our text as well. But then go with me in your minds to 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is talking about those last days and he says of those last days that men are going to reject the truth of God and they are going to gather men to them who will tell them the things that they want to hear. And, and, and what I see is this. It's a kind of marriage. The deceiver wants followers and he tells them what they want to hear, just like the false prophets and the false teachers in Second Peter and Jude do. They tell people what they want to hear. But the point is people want to hear it. They choose to reject the truth. They choose to believe a lie. And so when God sends the man of lawlessness to them, he sends them what they want. And and, and so I don't want you to look at people as somehow being drug off down the path of disbelief. These guys are running to it because they have rejected the gospel of our Lord. And so there is this dance, as it were, between the deceiver and the deceived that takes place because both of them are pursuing the same basic goals. Men get what they want and they get what they deserve. All right, let's talk about a couple of things. By the way, I think I left some things out and my conclusion is a great place to stuff them in. One, I made a comment last week about the difficulty of interpreting Scripture, and I basically said something like, uh, nobody has all the answers. I may have overspoken and given the impression that it's a futile effort when one tries to study prophecy, that it cannot be understood. If I said that, I take it back. What I meant to say was, Nobody, in my knowledge, has the ability to fill in all the blanks which God has left and, and, and therefore to explain all of these things. And so we need to come to prophecy with a kind of caution about the particulars. But the, the global message of prophecy is clear. And that is men will resist, men will rebel, and God in His sovereignty is working out His plan exactly as He wants. That's why when I see the, the restrainer taking place and God working, I see Him carrying out His plan. You know what restrains? It, because the issue here is about timing. Somebody's come along and said, Now, you know, in a sense, we've turbocharged this the, the day of the Lord and now it's here. One of the things that's very clear, and I see this in Daniel... Uh, very clearly in Daniel chapter 11. Look at this, which I noticed in verse uh, 27. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the appointed time. Down to verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return. And then down at verse 35. And some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits for the appointed time. What hinders the man of sin? My answer is God's schedule. God has a schedule in time. He has a perfect plan. And God is not going to allow anything to interfere with that schedule. And because he is sovereign, then he is going to restrain and keep these other things, as it were, Satan's on the leash, he's on the chain. And he will only be released at the moment when it is God's time for his program to move ahead in in that regard. Oh, I wanted to say something too about the comments that that Joseph made and that we pursued this morning in the worship time. Where Exodus 34 basically says God is gracious and kind and forgiving, but he also condemns sin, right? So you've got those two dimensions which we see carried out on the cross of our Lord. Is is First and Second Thessalonians, especially chapters one and two, is that not exactly what these two chapters say? When our Lord comes, He is going to come, and the tribulation and the suffering approves those and demonstrates those who are worthy of His coming and of His of His blessings. And it also is the time when he will bring about the condemnation and the judgment of those who are unbelievers. You see it in chapter 1. You see it again in chapter 2. God is bringing to fruition that which he said at the beginning in Exodus. And what is part of God's nature and attributes is what God executes when we come to prophecy in, in our text. And I just think it's helpful to understand this. So as I said, I believe that God's timing is the critical issue when we look at this issue of restraint and that will not be removed until the time that God has chosen. So if there's anything that's clear to me in all of this, it is that God is in control. God is sovereign and we'll see that in the prayer that Paul is going to give at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. He sees that it is the sovereign God who calls. It is the sovereign guy who, God who sanctifies. It is the sovereign God who regulates the opposition and brings about the conclusion of his purposes. And that ought to say to us, when I think about prophecy, I don't know, I don't really need to know all the particulars. What I need to know is that God is the one who has the plan and he has the power to make that plan work. Okay, Uh, let me say something for a minute about eminence and the passing of time, the nearness of his coming, and yet it's distant. I think there there needs to be a a balance kept between two tensions. In Matthew chapter 24, and in other places, I think here as well, there is a tendency for us to want the Lord to come... um, quickly, as in before certain things must come to pass. So what you see is, here are the disciples in Matthew 24 saying, you know, when's, when's this all going to come about? And even, you know, in Acts chapter 1, they're saying, is it now? Is it now that this is going to happen? And what Jesus says is, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to happen. And by the way, most of it isn't pleasant. So there's a sense in which we have to grant that in God's working. I would also say some of the things which may look like they take a lot of time may happen very quickly. I think I may have mentioned this last week. If I didn't, I'll mention it now. The gospel must must be preached to all the world. Well, I'm all in favor of missionaries going out and whatever, but Revelation 14, 14 through 16 says that the angel, I'm sorry, 6 through 7 says... The angel is going to go about and the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the whole globe. It'll happen and it can happen in a day. But the other side of it is we need to be careful that we don't put our Lord's coming off in the distance so long that we see it as unreal and therefore we're sloppy about it. And I'm thinking of Luke chapter 12. Where, remember, the servant says, well, my master is gone. He's gone for a long time. And so he beats the slaves and does all that. Let's be careful that we, uh, we don't necessarily, although his coming could be imminent, there is a sequence of things that must take place. And the, the 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 lawlessness and the coming of the man of lawlessness must come before that, as I see it. At the end game, there also is a danger of saying it is so far off somehow that I don't need to worry about it. You gotta you gotta hold both of those true. It's near, but there may be a wait, and I think both of those are involved. I want to say one more thing that won't you won't find here, but I was gonna say earlier, and that is. As I've been reading our Lord's words and Paul's words about the coming of our Lord, um, I think there is a danger of thinking that the the thing we fear is fear itself. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? When it when when you read our Lord and and it's he's saying don't be fearful or don't be frightened. I'm not sure that those words are implying only fright. And I'd like to suggest to you that there may be other ways in which the events that take place could rattle us. Think about our Lord. Think about his kind of messiahship. What Israel wanted, what the disciples wanted, was a messiah who would come and throw Rome out and would rule immediately over these political powers and and all the apostles could sit on their 12 thrones and, and whatever in all their glory, right? When it became apparent at our Lord's trial that he was not going down that path, instantly the crowd flips. Even Peter bails for a moment. The crowd flips and now they want Barabbas rather than Jesus. Why? Because Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was given to violence, and they wanted violence, not the one who didn't utter a word in his own defense. They wanted that. So when you see now Peter and Paul, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Paul in Romans 13, look at what they say about submission to governmental power. And, and how that we ought to be uh, subject to masters, but also subject in a sense, to those powers that God has placed over us. I know that there are qualifications and all of that. I, I just set those aside for a minute. They're saying, don't be a revolutionary, so that when Jesus comes, men may glorify him not because of our rabble rousing, but because we have lived righteous lives. And and so it seems to me that when you look then at the Jewish revolt in, in sixty six through seventy, that's exactly what our Lord was saying to Christians, don't join that army. They wanted to bring about, as it were, were the kingdom of God by revolt. I think there is a way, and I'm speaking for myself now. I think there is a way. When I watch the news and whatever, it makes me matter and matter. And, and, you know, I just like, where's my gun? You know, I just was just, God, you just get mad. It seems to me that what our text is saying, and, 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 even this passage where he says, the Lord, when he comes, will do it with the breath of his mouth. He's not talking about everybody packing Uzis. He says, God will take care of this guy in his time, and he'll take care of him quickly. And so I would say this, for some of us, it may be fear and panic. For others of us, it may be anger. That that is the thing which God is saying: if God is really in control, He is going to bring His things to pass in His time. Last point: why why is it why is Paul so concerned about the Thessalonians and the fact that they may embrace this error and be led down, as it were, the garden path? Why is that more of a concern than it is for us? I realized it was last week in the news that you had a a group of basically a few women and and a few kids and they go up on some park and they sit there and wait for the Lord to come. At least they weren't packing guns or drinking Kool-Aid. And and so I, I say it's, you know, at least they believed, they really believed Jesus is coming. But I think that what happens with the Thessalonians is they are suffering so much And their hope is fixed so much on the future that when somebody comes and offers them what looks to be Jesus, who is bringing about the fulfillment of his plans, they jump for it. Now, that's why you need the the instruction and the caution and all of these things that Paul has set forth. I think, you know, when we read it, we sit back in our chairs and kind of cool, you know, just, so what? I think what it says is we're not as eager for the coming of Christ as they were. And it may be because we've gotten too thick with the world. It may be that we're too comfy and cozy and in that coziness, the world may not be on us like they were on them. And so I say to you, when we read this, if it sounds foreign to us, that may be a message to us, that maybe we're not in danger because we just don't love his coming and look for it as much as we should. Well, I pray that God will give us something to think about this week in that regard. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. And we thank you that you have a lid on everything that is contrary to your purposes. We also thank you that in your time, you will remove that And you will allow Satan and the man of sin to have their day, but only for your purposes. I pray that those who are listening to my words may be those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus and who have the assurance of eternal life, knowing where they will be and what their destiny is because of him. If there's anyone here who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus, they've never acknowledged that they're a sinner, in rebellion against God, that I pray that you might work in their heart to convince them of their sin and of the judgment that rightly follows. May they trust in Jesus, who is gracious and compassionate and eager to forgive and who has died on the cross of Calvary so that men might live forever. May they trust in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.